Have you ever wondered why some young people choose to end their lives? Ever wondered who they are and who they left behind? Have you ever wanted to hear their stories? Would you like answers to these questions and many more? Welcome to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu. Her mission is to shine light on these young people, create awareness for, and educate the world on youth suicide. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Dr. Lulu and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. Now, here's Dr. Lulu. Hello and welcome back to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu, the podcast. How is everybody doing? Today is Friday, it's June 19th. It's actually Juneteenth, which is just ah, it's a lot of energy on its own. But today we're having a special recording of Suicide Pages, and I have a special person with me. You know, generally on this podcast, I always say the, the males are unicorns. The male, the black males are unicorns, unicorns. But the male doctors are unicorns, unicorns, unicorns. And I have one of those today. The last time I had one of these was Dr. Tyler Black from like October. So that's how few and far between these people are. So this is with just great pleasure that I want to welcome Dr. Benny Fernandez. He's a child and adolescent psychiatrist from Laurel Ridge right here in San Antonio. So this is like home for me, okay? So I'm really excited because he's one of us, literally. He's... um. I'm going to take like two minutes to tell us a little bit more about himself, but I'm excited because I've also had some runnings, so to say, with Laura Ridge. I've worked with them a little bit in my capacity as a speaker, so I'm really excited to welcome one of us. So welcome, Dr. Fernandez. Buenas tardes. ¿Qué pasa? Buenas tardes, Dr. Lulu. Thank you for inviting me here. Uh, I am so honored to be here with you, uh, spending a gorgeous afternoon talking about uh, some of your endeavors and your passion, which is, tends to be also my passion. So people ask me, you know, uh, what do you do? And uh, what, is it, what is it that you spend your time doing? So I'm a child psychiatrist. Uh, we go to medical school. Uh, then we do three years of residency in uh, psychiatry, general psychiatry. And then we do two years of child psychiatry. So it's about 13 years after high school. Uh, and uh, my practice is primarily taking care of children and adolescents, but even more special than that, uh, I'm a psychiatric hospitalist. So I work at a hospital and take care of uh, sick children, adolescents who are in a crisis. And I've been doing that at Low Ridge a Treatment Center here in San Antonio for the last 25 years. Uh, so I see, compared to what you talk about in your podcast regarding suicide, I see probably the sickest at the, of the sick when they're in crisis. So I deal with that every day. And uh, it's, it's, it's a joy and pleasure, even though my patients are always in crisis and my family seems to be in crisis too. I love the work that I do. And we have a great treatment team. I could not this 
do this by myself. We have a great treatment team that understands patients in, in crisis. And we all have had relatives or friends that we know that have been in crisis. So we, we know that you're not just a patient, you're the patient in crisis and the person and the human that needs our help. I love the way you painted that picture. So there's a person in crisis, that person happens to be a patient, but more importantly, is a human. And so, you know, it's funny you said that because pediatricians, I think, I mean, of course I'm biased, but I think we're like the best doctors because we take care of the future. So I love being a pediatrician. It's like, I always say, if you cut my skin, I'm going to bleed red blood mixed with, pediatri with pediatrics 50-50 because that's just, I breathe pediatrics. So thank you so much for also taking care of the most vulnerable of pediatric patients. The teenagers are very vulnerable, but more so when they're in crisis, that much more vulnerable. And then of course, you have the added layer of their family members. And I, I know I've had a, a son or two in crisis in one way or the other, not necessarily the, the, the department that you deal with, but just as a mother, you are incapacitated when you're in crisis. You're more, that much more when your child is in crisis, like you're just not thinking. So how, how do you navigate that? How, how is a day in the life of Dr. Hernandez? How is that for you? So in the morning, I, I come to the hospital and I tend to prioritize those patients that are, were just admitted within the last 24 hours. So at the hospital, I see patients every day. Uh, and, uh, I try to make sure that we, we look carefully as treatment team members, uh, the patients that just came in the night before uh, or that same morning. And then of course we see every patient every day, uh, but also uh, be involved and make sure that their families are taken care of. So a typical patient usually comes to us as a walk-in, somebody who's in crisis referred to our facility and we determine the need for admission. We, if we feel that they would benefit from crisis stabilization, inpatient psychiatric treatment, they get admitted to our unit. COVID has changed this for us uh, because their visitation is restricted, right? So uh, the admissions have to be done uh, differently. In the old pre-COVID, our patients and families would come into the unit. We would welcome them and do the admission with the parents uh, present, but now we have to do it uh, prior to the admission so our parents are not able to see our campus that is on eight and also are not able to come to the unit and get a feeling of what the unit feels like. So it adds more stress. We have the capability of doing uh, Zoom family therapy and also Zoom visitation. So we've uh, needed to adapt to that, but it's, it's never the same thing. Uh, you wanna make sure that, that the parents understand that they're leaving their child in a safe place where this is our specialty. We also, uh, patients come to, through us like referral walk-in or they come from emergency departments or other other um, medical pediatric hospitals, maybe following a suicide attempt, uh, an overdose, serious cutting. So they get routed maybe by ambulance or family to the ER, not knowing what to do. And then they come to our facility after they're medically stabilized. Uh, during COVID, we've seen an increase, I think, in the severity of the suicide attempts. I recently had three patients, one after the other, with various, very serious suicide attempts with overdoses. Um, maybe not knowing uh, as a teenager the, uh, how lethal this can be and how your life 
would have changed or you could have died. Uh, but I've noticed that it's been more serious. And I think one of the reasons for that has to do with the lack of a support system for the teenagers. Uh, they're not going to school, even though they can text their friends and have the same. So we've been seeing an increase, I think, of uh, children in distress, lack of availability of their support network, and also uh, lack of availability of school counselors uh, during COVID. So all that has been limited. So I think we've seen uh, more stress uh, recently. Uh, yeah. I, I get it. I, I think, you know, you mentioned something that I hadn't even thought about. The family visitation piece. I have not even like thought about it, but that is so true. It is so crucial to have that support system. And when we have a physical distance in ordinance, then of course that is falling apart. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I share your sentiments about the increasing severity of the anxiety, which can stem from not only the teenagers and their friends not being able to connect, but also the parents are scared. Parents have lost their jobs. I mean, you're home with your father or your mother 24 seven, all of a sudden you, you it's like, it's a new energy, it's a new, it's a new normal. And I don't even know if I wanna call it, I don't know if I'm ready to call it normal yet, but this is amazing. This is actually something I had not thought about. And of course, absence of the school counselors. It's funny, if your child doesn't need the school counselor, you don't appreciate that the school counselor is necessary until you, your child is one of those who actually use the school counselor frequently, then it's like, you know what? That's a missing piece. And yes, no matter how awesome the Zoom can be, it's not the same thing as the human presence and the human touch. Wow. So goodness, I don't even know where to go from there because that is a very powerful thing to unpack. Even for me, I've just been scribbling, <laughs> trying to get everything you're saying down. If I can add Dr. Lulu about the... Uh parental distress. So we've also seen an increase in conflicts regarding to academics. So before parents were more removed from the daily academic work of students and their children, but now all of a sudden uh, they're having to either pick up packets at school uh, and make sure that they're returned to school for grading or uh, availability of uh, you know Google Classroom education online and all of a sudden they notice that their uh, children are not participating as actively because they probably middle schools and high schoolers, you're not as involved. So all of a sudden uh, you have to be more involved in that process, which creates more conflict. In addition to the school issues, we've also seen teenagers getting frustrated by social distancing and having to spend time at home. Uh, I know there's been loosening of that here in the state of Texas and especially here in San Antonio. Uh, but we'll see what happens. But participating in school sports. So a lot of my teenage uh, adolescent boys that participate in football, for example, or soccer tend to be very active. They were not able to leave the houses and get the support from their uh, friends and coach. Uh, and all of a sudden they're having to sit at home, you know, interacting with their parents who are also without it stressors, financial, occupational, like you were saying. I agree with you. You can say that again for those at the back. Those are real issues. The absence of school sports. You know, the funny thing about teenagers, the teenagers are so weird. They don't want to go to school when school is in session. Like, let's face it, like, oh, I have to go to school every day. I hate school. And then all of a sudden, well, okay, you don't have to go to, 
You don't have to go to school. Oh, no, I, now I want to go to school. You can't win with teenagers. But that is so true, the need for peer interaction. Even as adults, I miss just being able to just do whatever. I mean, it's like human beings are so just weird. And of course, teenagers as humans, they're just as weird. But yeah, you're right about the absence of school sports. I happen to have a son who plays basketball and it took everything in my power. And he would come and I know I could, I could tell even with the words on set that he just wanted to just go out and just play ball. And he would, he would phrase it in different ways. I miss so-and-so and I missed that and mom am I gonna be able to play ball um, when I get back oh he would just say words like I could tell that he's just dying inside to to play ball and I and I, I wept for him and then again I couldn't I couldn't help him I just didn't know what to do and I said you you, you call your friends yes I called them already and and then play video games yeah but mom there's only so much video games can do and that is true and he's lucky he's got two big brothers at home but then they have different interests and He's just, I, 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 I feel like sometimes I just go out, I just want to hug on him and just rub his hair just so he knows that I feel his pain, but I don't know what to do about it. So imagine, I can only imagine if we had a family that was, that had a lot of conflict, how much more conflicted that would be for me as a parent being unable to help my child, but also for my child, if we are knocking heads before, when, when the going was good. So how have you been able to navigate that? And how, how, I mean, how are you able to help these people? Because this is a real problem that I didn't even think about. Yeah, so because I see them at, at a, at a uh, I'm, I have the luxury of being able to work with them for a period of time. Uh, not as much as, as with our parents because they're, they're not as involved, but we work on conflict resolution. We work on coping skills. We work on especially communication and also uh, wellness, take care of your, of your body, uh, relax yourself, eat dry, try to sleep right, but mostly communicate. So when patients come to us, there's usually a reason why they came to us. So in spite of you know, families' issues uh, that tend to be uh, kind of longstanding or also maybe some other issues that uh, our children are, are going through, we try to focus on what got you here. Even though you might not get along with uh, mom and dad, uh, maybe you're here because you broke up with a girlfriend or boyfriend, or because uh, you're being cyberbullied at school, uh, through school, uh, through social media, or you're bored, or you're sad, or you lost somebody. So we try to focus specifically on that uh, because we have a limited period of time to be able to deal with that. Exactly. We want to focus on similar that of that a surgeon, if you have a, an abscess, you know, something that is bothering you, you want to take it out, we want to focus on that abscess. You know, what, what is the worst thing that stressed you the most at this point? So we teach our patients to focus on that. And while they're with us at the hospital, continue communicating with your family, even though, you know, you came following an argument or a conflict, we want to be able to communicate, maybe at the beginning superficially, just dealing with the basic communication, Hey, mom and dad, just wanted to let you know I'm okay here. I love you guys. I'm getting better. I hope things get better. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. Let's try to move on. So we try to focus on that. Uh, children and adolescents tend to be very resilient, so they want to move on. Uh, parents, as an adult, the older I get, the, the less I change, right? That's right. So for me, it's, so my parents have more difficulty moving on uh, and focusing from here 
in the, from now on, right? What's going to be different from now on? How, even though your child, you know, you have all this resentment about all these things and he did all these things that maybe you did not approve of that got him uh, ill. How can we move on and, and focus on from here now? Wow, that is so true. You can certainly say that again. Parents do have a hard time moving on. And I think also we have to give them some, some grace because it's, 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 they don't want to relax because it might happen again. And then again, the child is like, mom, seriously, I am okay. And they're like, yeah, but the last time you said you were okay. So it's like the fear of the unknown. And that is a true, that is a true statement. You, you, you don't really know. We can't see the future. So we don't know when to relax and when not to relax. But that is a very, very key point that children and adolescents tend to be more resilient. As resilient as they are, we still know that you should not belittle it when your child is, you know, like a friend of mine said on my podcast lately, he said, yes, a suicide attempt is a cry for help. It's not a cry for attention. And I thought that was, there's a, there's, there's a play on words, but it's a good play on words. It's a cry for help, but not necessarily like, it's not a cry for attention. I don't know. I understood it the way he said it anyway. But coming back to you and thinking about self-care, I mean, who doctors the doctor? How are you doing personally with all of this, with the up in the number of crises that you're getting? And how about you? How, how do you navigate it to come up with your game face every day and look like everything is okay with Dr. Fernandez? Uh, you know, I, I take care of myself. I make sure that I sleep well. When I go home, if I have some work to be done, I finish my work. Uh, I have the support of, uh, you know, family and friends uh, that care about me. And I also love to, you know, walk my dog in the evenings. Uh, I also love to use the pool. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, if I'm too stressed, I might take a shower before I, I join, uh, I join uh, you know, my activities at the house. So uh, I take care of myself. That's wonderful. I have to ask you that because I know you know this, but I'm going to state for those who don't know that doctors, especially in America, do have the highest rate of suicide of all white collar jobs. And, and, and the, the problem is, is deep seated. It's, it's, it's a systematic problem. It's a systemic problem. It's, it's a institutionalized problem. I mean, all of that. And yet we're not supposed to ever cry for help when they were supposed to cry wolf, you know, when the going is bad. So you might be able to take care of, self, of yourself, but I know many people, many doctors, I mean, as you've heard since this quarantine, we've had what, seven, I think it was seven or nine, the last time I counted suicides amongst doctors. And that's now counting the medical students and the residents, just the doctors. And of course, many doctors also lost the battle to COVID-19 as an infection themselves. So it's been a, we've been really hard hit. We've been really hard hit, which is why I said to you at the beginning that I was going to also ask you how you're doing on a, on a personal level and how you're doing family level and, of course, you know, professionally. So how is your family doing with the COVID-19? Well, it is, it is an adjustment, right? So at the beginning, everybody's stress level is up. Uh, I work at a hospital, so I have to go to the hospital every day. Uh, even though we started screening our patients very early on, uh, earlier, about two weeks earlier, that in the in the local healthcare community, uh, you you were hearing the, the cases going up in the community and more stress added uh, to you know, am I gonna get it? Is my family gonna get it? So, uh, my family told me you cannot come into the house until you take a shower <laughs> and change your clothes. So I, I learned <laughs> I learned that became part of my habit. You know, leaving my 
close at the entrance, making sure I take a shower uh, before I join, I join my family to protect everybody. Yes. I wear a mask. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been wearing masks for quite a while already and a lot of hand washing, which is uh, known to prevent the best and making sure that you watch social distancing. In a hospital setting, it's, it's challenging, right? Especially working with teens that want to hug you and be being in close proximity, we have to constantly make sure that they follow that, uh, which, uh, which requires a lot more redirection than usual from our, our nursing staff. Uh, because we want to make sure they don't, they don't get sick and, and encouraging to them to wear masks, which is, you know, teenagers don't like masks. Uh, so, uh, and, and washing their hands, they're not very clean. So we have to constantly remind them uh, to wash their hands, you know, don't hug, stay away. We separated their, the chairs uh, to be able to respect social distancing and are doing things differently, like limiting the amount of uh, uh, teens in a group. So that way, uh, you know, there's no more than 10 at a time in a large group room uh, separated uh, by distance. Wow, it sounds like you guys, you got you, you pretty much covered everything. Everything you said, I'm just checking off in my head, just checking off. That is amazing. And um, I know teenagers, I mean, I, you know, the particular kinds of teenagers that you, that you service or that you serve rather, they need the hugs more than anything. So I can, I can only imagine how hard that must be, almost just heartbreaking, like, wow. But you seem to be handling it well. Seem to be handling it well. We so, do a lot of elbow bumps these days. I know. Yes, we have to. We have to because you know the funny. I saw I saw something on Facebook that said I think maybe Instagram or whatever. They said if you don't like your masks, you're definitely not. If you don't like wearing masks, you're definitely not going to like a ventilator. So it's like oh. you choose. You choose which one you want to wear. You know, of course. I mean, but it's true. It's true. Wow. I was going to ask you about something that I talk about a lot or don't talk about a lot on my podcasts, which I know I didn't prepare you for this, but it's the big elephant in the room, medication for people who are suicidal. That's, I know it's a huge topic, but you want to, you want to touch on that a little bit? How do you yeah, do, so how do you do with your patients knowing fully well that most suicide attempts are situational and um, crisis is the background of that or trauma, overwhelm, things like that. How do you reconcile that with people who want to give medication? Because every time you hear in the news that somebody died of suicide, the first thing you hear is depression, which I have found has not been the case. So what about you? What has been your experience? I would agree the majority of our uh, of patients that come to, to us with suicidal behavior or attempts uh, tend to have an, an issue, a conflict uh, that prompts or a situation, right? That leads that the majority of the patients that come to us at the hospital following a suicide attempt or suicidal crisis or uh, suicidal behavior uh, tends to be situational related, right? Something led to it. And we try to focus on that. And I was saying that about 25% of patients that are depressed have suicidal thoughts. But the opposite is also very very important, like you were saying, not every patient that has suicidal ideation has depression. So if you have depression, you're at a higher risk of having suicidal thoughts or behavior. But if you have suicidal behavior or, or thoughts, it doesn't mean that you're clinically depressed. So we want to consider, people say, well, the only treatment for suicidality is, is an antidepressant, not 
it's just a pill won't solve the crisis, right? So you have to focus on much more than that. Uh, so we focus on the crisis. That's the most important thing uh, to do. If the patient meets criteria for clinical depression, probably of moderate to high severity, then we consider an antidepressant. But if some if if a teen broke up with his girlfriend uh, and they have no history of depression, there's no family history of mood disorders or depression, and this is more recently, uh, we focus on the situation. We don't need an antidepressant at that point. Uh, an antidepressant in a in a patient that doesn't have clinical depression uh, is not protective of, of suicidal behavior. I love the way you said that. That is very clearly stated. About 25% of depressed patients have suicidal thoughts, and that is true. But suicidal behavior does not equate to clinical depression. And it's, but, but you and I know this, but for some reason, you know, big pharma, they push, push, push. And then, of course, we know that the side effect of these antidepressants is also suicidal behavior. And it happened to me when I was suicidal, they, they were quick to give me an antidepressant. Then I got worse. <laughs> I was like, wait, this is not working. And because I'm a, I'm a, I'm an, I was an adult and I, I stopped taking the medicine on my own because I knew I had just gotten a divorce. That was what caused me to go into a crisis. And if any, any, anybody had asked me what happened, I would have told them, <laughs> but nobody asked me, you know, just like, oh, here, take some of this. So thank you so much for stating that because it's important that people know that people the jump to mental illness and, and of course with the stigma of mental illness already people who are suicidal they don't want you to tell them that if that is not the case so usually situational especially relationship issues and i'm glad you touched on that and so that being said what um maybe maybe i should ask that but um when they do meet the diagnosis of clinical depression and they're also suicidal what are your what are the first medicines that you that you try when, when when they when they do or if they do one of the luxuries i have is that i i, I can monitor my patients 24 7 right mm. so while they're with me i feel much more confident in being able to start an antidepressant if clinically indicated mm -hmm. um, and and monitor for side effects and worsening irritability or clinical behavior according to the fda black box warning for mm. the antidepressants or suicidal behavior, right? So we're able to monitor that. Uh, some of those studies that uh, forced the FDA to provide a black box warning for worsening clinical behavior or suicidality uh, had to do with maybe some of those studies not being done correctly in the population they picked. Uh, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry believes uh, that uh, Patients that were having depression were having also suicidal behavior or thoughts. Uh, but no matter what, we couldn't prove to the FDA that they need to relook at their black box warning, it, it, it stayed. So we informed the, our patients to monitor for, maybe you're getting more irritable, more anxious, more frustrated. Let's monitor that and see if it's a side effect of the medication. Is your suicidal behavior getting better or worse? or the same, let's monitor for that. So we watch that more carefully and we explain it to our patients to make sure that they, they, they know what their baseline questions and uh, monitoring and safety uh, risk management uh, all the time. In every interaction that we have, we always ask for safety at the hospital because we wanna make sure that they're communicating with us how they feel. Something we teach also our patients is 
the difference between action and behavior. So one of the things that I've noticed uh, or we've noticed is that patients get referred to us because maybe in a questionnaire at school on depression, they ask their DS to suicidal behavior or thoughts, but the, or, or somebody, a school counselor talks to them or an outpatient counselor that doesn't know too much how to uh, ask the right question. Mm -hmm. so, so sometimes what happens is they fill out a questionnaire, uh, they say yes to suicidal behavior or thoughts, mm -hmm. but those are all thoughts or behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, and I understand, you know, the public gets concerned uh, about, about suicidal thoughts and behaviors, uh, but we're much more comfortable in dealing with that. So we can, we can understand the difference between past thoughts or past actions and current thoughts and current actions and behavior. Mm. So something we teach our patients is that the difference between action and behavior, I can have a thought, but not necessarily uh, is it gonna become an action, right? So I use the example with, with my uh, teens that if I'm upset, uh, I might be upset and I might wanna get up, pick up the chair and throw it against the, ball and, uh, the wall and smash it, but I'm not gonna do it. I'm able to control myself. Same thing for other thoughts and behaviors such as suicidal thinking. So you might feel sad, you might have suicide thoughts, but they have no intention and no plan of uh, doing anything at this point. Uh, so we, we clarify that for them. We understand that, our patients understand that, but when they get out of a controlled environment, some other people don't. And we, say, we tend to see, you know, we tend to see that sometimes after discharge, they ask them somewhere, are you suicidal? And they, and they said, yes, yes, and they get readmitted because yeah. they were suicidal last time they came to us. Yes. So. Yeah. But, I, I read... I read somewhere recently where they said, and I, in, in, and I was surprised, but I guess it's true. Once some studies show that the first 90 days or the first three months after discharge for suicidal attempt, they have the highest rate of suicide completion. Is that true? Or has well, that I been your experience? I, have, I don't know the specific numbers, but like anything else, you know, if you've done it once, you have a risk of doing it again. Yes. Uh, so, uh, we see, unfortunately, uh, recurring suicidal behavior, uh, which is very sad uh, in teens. And teens tend to think that uh, it's not gonna happen to me and also uh, nothing is gonna happen to me. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon uh, for a teen following a serious overdose, even though you might show them uh, maybe some of the lab results or uh, their parents might talk to them about how sick they were when they were found following a suicide attempt, like an overdose, teens, their brain doesn't work that way, you know. Because it they happens, survived it, right? Because, time. yeah, exactly. Because they survived it in their mind is like, well, I mean, I, I survived it, so it's not gonna happen to me. And I, I, completely, I completely get that. that that's, that's a tough one to navigate. It's a tough one to navigate. And that's probably the biggest challenge we, uh, we have to overcome with our patients. Uh, I think you, you've said it correctly. The, it is challenging to help them understand that they need help right now to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think that's the biggest challenge. I'm fine. In a teenager's brain, I'm fine. Uh, I can do this. You guys are exaggerating. 
it wasn't that serious. It wasn't that serious. Ah, oh, that's the that's the phrase, that's the phrase of the moment. And sadly, I have seen, well, at least the one girl who she live streamed her suicide on on Facebook. Her mother was actually one of the people doing the three-hour Facebook lives. I was like, you're not really gonna do it. Like, get off the cell phone or whatever, you know. And then she did. She did. So it's it's very difficult to be able to tell. And that is the herein lies the problem with teenagers and even adults. I had a I had a, a guest on my podcast who was actively talking to her sister-in-law on the phone when her sister-in-law actually killed herself. So sometimes you just don't know. You just you just never know. And then again, I've been able to talk somebody down from a ledge. I talked I talked the lady down from a rooftop in Nigeria while I was here in San Antonio. It took me an hour, forty-five minutes, and nine seconds. I checked it, like to talk her down from the roof. I don't, I didn't know her, so I just it's just sometimes you just never know. Um, just never know. How do you how do you how do you, how do you <laughs> How do you navigate that? Just that fear of the unknown. It's, uh, I mean, I, all I can do is as best as I can, right? Yes. So we, we, as, as a mental health providers, all we can do is provide the help. And there are some people that are very determined and are probably gonna accomplish it. What makes me more sad are those people that are uh, not counted, right? So I'm able to you know, thank you. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so I, over the last several years, you know, I've become my father where I read the obituaries, <laughs> you know, uh, and look at the paper every so often. And I see, I see young people. Uh, and you can tell, I've, I've tried to become a detective to try to figure out how to reading an obituary, yes. what, what can I, can I make sense out of it? So I use a a psychiatrist ha uh, hat. And many times, depending on where they want you to donate to, uh, National Alliance for Mentally Ill or American Suicide Society, uh, or, you know, the clubhouse, you know that there's probably uh, some mental illness involved. But they're not counted in those numbers. They're not. Uh, they're just best. Uh, and uh, how sad that there's a period in their life when you know, we would be more than willing to it be only a semicolon, right? So I don't know if you know about that movement, the semicolon. Yes, yes, I do, I do, uh, I do. So I, many of my teens, I tell them, you know, I'm glad this was a semicolon and not a period yes. in your life because you're yes. too valuable. You're too valuable. And, and, and just going back a little bit, not to actually beat a dead horse, literally speaking, but I have also been, you know, I, I don't reach the obituaries. I mean, I'm, <laughs> but I, de I definitely know when I see an announcement and I, I see the way the words are carefully crafted and I can usually tell that this was a suicide. And I've never really thought about connecting to who they want to donate to because that makes a lot of sense also. But certainly you could tell which ones are suicides and which ones are not. And um, it's, it's, it's just sad. And then, of course, that, that begs the question, how many people really truly die by suicide in a year, in a month, in a week, in, a, in an hour? Because as you know, the, the, Ameri the WHO predicted that by 2020, it was gonna be one every 20 seconds. And last week, I just happened to scroll through Twitter and I saw, I forget who the gentleman is, or some group about suicide prevention, 
And they did the math. And so far, by June of this year, it's 26.9 seconds. They've done the math already. But only for those who are counted legally. Because you and I know that majority of suicides are not counted. If I had killed myself when I was suicidal several years ago, I know my father would never utter the words suicide. He will never. And I don't know that my kids will. So it's like many, many, many people die by suicide and are not counted. And then the question is, are we really truly taking care of the problem? If it's majority of the time situational and we're quote unquote in denial that it even happened, then how do we take care of it? Because we know that the highest rate of suicide is in the family members of those who died by suicide. So the situation basically continues without, um, without respite. I, I don't know that I have the answers, doc. I don't know. How many, how many, uh, how many uh, coronavirus patients have died in the U.S.? It's about 100,000, I can't remember. Yes, yes, we, we know that so, many, but are we even sure? So I had a colleague at the beginning that told me, you know, if you add uh, deaths by suicide in the U.S. and death, deaths by uh, substance use, uh, maybe overdoses or suicide, because we'll never know, it added to 120,000 a year. I believe so, it. So we have a pandemic. Yes. Uh, oh my God. I said that. I said that. I said that a suicide is, I said epidemic. Then I realized globally it's a pandemic. I said that. I said that the other day. That's amazing. If we're shutting down the country uh, because of a hundred, less than a hundred thousand people, mm -hmm. what, what are we doing for suicide? Thank you. You see, and that's because both of us happen to be on the same trail. We're both screaming the same song, right? I said that. I said, look, globally, this is so much of a pandemic. I'm surprised more doctors, because people ask me, say, why do you quit your job to, to do this? I said, because every doctor should quit their job to do this. I mean, not literally speaking, but suicide prevention for me is the ultimate form of preventative medicine. Like, if, if there's nobody to come to your practice because they've all killed themselves, then you don't have a practice. And um, it's sad, but 120,000 may not even be correct. It may not even be correct because in the U.S. officially it's 47,000. 47,000? That's Texas. Because Texas has said every two hours a teenager attempts suicide. And then we know that the highest risk for suicide completion, like you said, is a suicide attempt. So it's too, the numbers are too much. And then when you throw in the pandemic, like we said, with all the other stressors, domestic abuse, alcoholism, I mean, the federal government left the, the liquor stores open during a pandemic. So it's just really, honestly, I can't wrap my head around it, but the numbers, the numbers worldwide definitely should be at least two or three million, but no one is counting, so. So we need to make sure that we advocate. I think that's yes. the most important thing. The problem is our, you know, the victims uh, that completed suicide are not going to be able to advocate. The families tend to be quiet about it uh, or blame it to something else, right? Let's suppose bullying. Uh, let's suppose, uh, you know, other issues, which is okay. But why do you mention also suicide and advocate for suicide? Most people, most people, I know a friend of mine who, whose son died by suicide recently. And I think, unfortunately, 
for that sense of it won't happen to me, it won't happen to my child, is only when it happens that they now become advocates, which it's good, but I wish we didn't have to get there before you become an advocate. It's like, like almost you want to believe that while you, you've said it already that they have a lot of a high rate of resiliency, but we also know that they kill themselves too. So rather than saying, oh, it won't happen to my child, or my, my son is good, my daughter is good, or the son themselves say they're good, we have to assume that suicide is a real and present danger, like it can happen. And of course, going back to the number of suicides for a minute, we know that in the age range of 10 through 34, where is number two killer, what they've said is for that particular age range, the combination of every single disease in the world that affects that age range, suicide still beats them for the commonest cause of, of death. And then when it comes to accidents in particular, many of my guests who have come on my podcast, they've said that, look, when they attempted, they made sure it would look like an accident. So then how many people really are dying by suicide? Because if, if it's second only to accidents and some of those accidents are arguably suicides, is it really second? Correct. Like car accidents, right? We get car patients accidents. Are, yes, that, of course. That drivers that uh, have suicide thoughts and you know, uh, wanna wanna crash or jump over bridges, and you, you will never know. You will never uh, know. To your first point that you just said, uh, something that uh, that we talk about is that uh, suicide doesn't discriminate, right? Mm. So no matter what Equal class you come from, yes, 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 it doesn't discriminate. It comes in every color, every race, uh, and every SES uh, socioeconomic uh, status. So, you know. Uh, People get surprised sometimes, you know, so-and-so's uh, kid died uh, or relative died. Uh, how come they didn't know? Well, you know, probably because we, you know, that that person was in crisis, didn't get help, or sometimes it just happens. There are no warning signs. Yes. One out of one out of five kids who kill themselves will not leave a warning sign. But four out of five will. And so I like to focus on the fact that four out of five will and we need to focus on the fact that they will and then when they when we start talking about it, well you know he was asking questions about death and he was asking questions about where people go when they kill themselves and he was writing some dark poetry and then he was watching a lot of well he was leaving signs and then teenagers being who they are they're not gonna come and say mom guess what i want to kill myself no but they'll tell you that they're giving away all their stuff and they're saying goodbye to their aunts and uncles. They're dropping all those little nuggets here and there. And they're telling their friends. Their friends usually know. But then again, going back to what you said, most suicides are usually a surprise until you start digging. Is it really a surprise? Or did you just pretend or assume that these little signs that they were leaving for you were not relevant enough? And so, wow. Dr. Fernandez, I can't believe it's, it's, it's almost been an hour and it's been so good talking to you usually before i let my guests go first of all i ask you if you want to come back wink wink and then i ask you if you have any favorite books or every any favorite podcast wink wink or more importantly any parting words for the listeners to just kind of ruminate on especially now that we're all everyone is in crisis i know i have been any parting words any words of consolation that you can give or just words of advice well, first of all, I'd love to uh, come back. It, it, you made it so enjoyable. I can't even tell that, uh, you know, we've been spending almost an hour doing this and you made it so easy for me. So thank, thank you. you. I was a little anxious. I use my coping skills, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
Uh, oh. Yeah, so what I'd like to say is, you know, there, get help. Uh, yes. There's help available. I know it's hard to access um, mental health services, but even right now, you know, we're doing a lot of telehealth and it's going to be still available. So you're just a phone call away. You're just a text away from getting help at this point. And before it was that more difficult, but I think now we've learned that we can do this uh, and it's available. So get help, take care of yourselves, communicate how you feel mm. and use, use, you know, walk, uh, do some exercising, hug your family, spend time with your family, enjoy nature. Uh, you know, uh, for me, it's the water. Think about the water. Go to that Instagram image that you like mm. that helps you calm down. Mm. Remove yourself from the situation. That yes. <laughs> yes. You know, it's not, even at work, you know, if I'm too stressed, excuse me, can I take a couple of minutes? Take a break. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, and then also get help if you need it. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty available. Uh, and the, the, the good thing nowadays is that there are so many resources online uh, and you know, find something that is helpful to you and find uh, uh, also, you know, some type of a hobby or interest that you enjoy and then uh, develop a passion for it and, and, uh, and keep, keep practicing and until you master it because we know that things like learning a different language, uh, wellness, meditation, yoga are hugely helpful. In the old days, we thought only talk therapy is what helps. That's not the only thing. The other thing too is if you're seeing a therapist that is just doing talk therapy, tell them to serve you more as a coach. Uh, and nowadays there, there's a manuals to do therapy that, and workbooks that you and the, your therapist can work on to try to get, get you to do better. So yes. uh, just talking, we know it doesn't help. Yes, more, I, got that, I love that. Anymore. I love that. That's why I, I call myself a telecoach for my patients. I, yesterday I was on TV and I, and today I told her, I said, no, she said, yes, you're a coach. I said, yes, I'm a coach. I think it's, I think a coach is a better term anyways, more acceptable these days, but also it's because I'm not quite a therapist because I'm all about the whole, the whole person. And I love, I love what you said. The, the most important word for me, the hashtag moment was get help get help. And one of my guests on my podcast, a, a psychiatrist like you, she actually said, she had an adolescent psychiatrist. She said, it is easier to say yes, than I need help. So for those who are around the people, ask them, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you wanting to hurt yourself? They might say yes, than to say I need help. So either way, at least we're saving lives. And of course, 1-800-273-TALK. Oh my goodness. Call that number. Download the app, the Not Okay app, Put it on your phone, put it on your kids' phones. Everybody must use that app. I love that app. There's no such thing as I got it because honestly, even for us doctors, I've had weak moments since this thing has been going on and I've just done what I need to do best, which is exercise. So like you said, walk, smell the roses, you know, just take a break. Dr. Fernandez, I'm going to have to tell you about an idea I have offline because I have, that's a great idea that I have. So remind me because I might forget. <laughs> So um, thank you so much. I mean, where can the listeners find you? I know you are you work with Laurie, but is there anywhere else that the listeners can find you? Are you online at all? Is there a I'm website? Not, I, I don't have I don't have I don't have too much, uh, you know, uh, busy with work. But you know, uh, 
I speak Spanish, and I think there's not a whole lot of resources for the Spanish population. Si, sí, señor. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you probably have uh, uh, encouraged me to do maybe do something uh, in English or in Spanish, maybe briefer uh, than an hour of, uh, you know, thoughts. I write sometimes on Facebook, uh, but, but I don't have a big social presence. Uh, it's something that I need to work on. Okay, well, I'm glad that I was able to inspire you because I do like to, to, to think that I inspire people and, you know, you can get inspiration from wherever. But I do have something that I want us to work on together. So when we get offline, because I don't want anybody to steal our idea. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. So, ladies and gentlemen, oh, my goodness, every good thing must come to an end. And so we have come to the end of today's episode of Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu, the podcast. If you know anybody who's struggling, please have them reach out for help. You know what? Forget them. You be the one. You be the one. Studies have shown that teenagers who are suicidal, who can identify one single adult that they trust will thrive. You go and be the one for that teenager today. Tell them that Tamula sent you. Tell them that Fernandez sent you. And I'll see you guys in the next episode, okay? Deuces. Bye.